As we come together this morning to look at our passage, we're going to look at it a little bit differently than I sometimes do. You know, you guys know that I like to go through verse by verse, verse by verse, and we will do that at the end, but we're going to start out a little bit differently, and let me try to explain why. I'm going to take a quote from you from a guy named Brian Rosner. It's, he wrote an article and he, for the University of Aberdeen. He says, the paragraphs are sometimes described as disjointed, obscure, unfinished, imprecise, extravagant, and even incoherent. And the reason these particular verses are sometimes difficult to understand is because we only have one side of the conversation. We've talked about this quite a bit in Bible interpretation, how when you have only one side of the conversation, sometimes it's difficult for us to know even what they're talking about. And so this is one time at which it really kind of jumps up and bites us. Other times I think it's pretty clear what they're talking about. We don't have a lot of trouble. But this one is very difficult. And because of that, how you end up deciding what's going on in this particular context is really going to very much color what you think Paul is talking about here. So because of that, what we're going to do is we're going to spend some extra time, more than we normally would, talking about the options on what might be going on in this passage. And I think once we narrow down what's going on in this passage back and forth, it might be easier to walk through the passage verse by verse and understand what is really going on. So we'll really have a good idea of what I think the argument is and what's happening and the issues being addressed and the verses will make more sense that way rather than me trying to go just verse by verse and explaining it. So we continue to go on to 1 Corinthians and of course they continue to have these issues or they had some issues and Paul is continuing to address them. So we know and I had Debbie read it this morning to get you guys the flavor of the context of the passage. As a matter of fact, it might be a good week for you to pull out your Bible, your phone, or whatever you use for your Bible and have the verses in front of you. Because I won't, I won't have all the verses in front of you all the time this morning. So it might be easier to follow along that way. And so he's addressing here in chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, he's addressing sexual immorality. And we're trying to figure out what exactly is he addressing. Is there a specific problem? Is it something more general? What's going on? And so we are going to go through a few different ways to look at it. And we are going to start out with the idea that maybe it's sexual immorality in general. Now someone commented, I put a smiley face emoji on the sexual immorality slide, and that was not on purpose. <laughs> My happy emoji means these are the arguments for why this might be the case, all right? And when we get to our sad emoji, that means these are the arguments against why this might be the case. So let's go through. What are some arguments to think that maybe all Paul is addressing here when he's talking about sexual immorality isn't a specific sin that the Corinthians are committing, that he's just railing against sexual immorality in general? So first, he already dealt with some specific in issues. So in chapters 5, 1 through 13, you might remember he dealt with incest and he dealt with lawsuits. Last week we talked about that, chapter 6, 1 through 11. And so maybe he's done dealing with specific issues and now he's going to hit something more in general. The next is, you know, prostitution's mentioned, but it's not mentioned starting out in verse 12. He does mention it later on in 15 and 16. And while that is specific, because maybe it's not mentioned till later on, he is really just addressing something more general. The third option is, 
7.2, if you go to chapter 7, verse 2, is general, and therefore the passage is general as well. And I'll read that for you. It says, But because of the temptation of, to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And that seems to be a pretty general reference to sexual immorality. And so maybe flowing into the context of chapter 7, that is all he's addressing. He's not addressing something specific. But then we go on to our unhappy face emoji on why maybe this isn't the case. Why well, I'd argue this is not what he's talking about. He says, first argument is, he continues addressing specific issues. So he's addressing specific issues in five. He addresses a specific issue in chapter six with the lawsuit. So it does make some sense that rather than switching to general at this point, he's just hitting one more specific issue. Next is, he doesn't have to specifically mention prostitution because they knew. Let me try to give you an example. If we were sitting here in this room and I started saying something like this, you know, I just really think windows with colors on them are really bad. And you shouldn't have windows with any colors on them. Now, if you were listening to the recording at home and you had no idea what our sanctuary looked like, you might go, what is he talking about? Windows with colors, yada, yada, you know, they don't even understand, right? But of course, when I said that and you're all sitting in this room, what did most of you all immediately think of? Oh, he's talking about the stained glass in the sanctuary, right? He's talking about the thing. I would never have to mention the stained glass specifically while we're sitting in this room to have a whole entire conversation about it, because you know we'd all know what I was talking about, right? And of course, it's silly for me to think it's bad to have color on glass, but you get the illustration. And so here, he doesn't need to even mention, he doesn't have to sit there and go, this is the problem you guys are having. He, they know the problem that they're having. So the fact that he doesn't mention prostitution specifically as the problem till later on probably isn't all that significant, because they very likely knew exactly what he was talking about long before he even got to those particular verses. Um, third, 6, 12 through 20 can be specific and moving to something general in 7, 2. So while we agree that 7, 2 starts introducing something more general as far as um, sexuality is concerned, it does not mean he's not addressing something specific in chapter 6. So I think he's just hitting one more specific issue before he goes on to something general. And fourth, while marriage can be a check on immorality, it does not mean that 6, 12 through 20 isn't a specific issue. So there was an argument, and I think I might have skipped it, that, well, marriage is the, is the kind of the way to fix all the immorality problems. It's kind of this really helpful thing that helps with immorality, and so that's why it's something general. But I don't think that needs to be the case. So we go on to our next possible option, and that's this. What's really being continued to be talked about is the stepmother of 5.1. So do you remember back in chapter 5.1 when he's scolding them and he says, you're sleeping with your father's wife, which most people agree is probably the stepmother. You know, that is, the argument is this is just a continuation of that context. Like he's never stopped talking about that. So because of that, the court battle in chapter 6 
is also about this issue. What they went to court over was the issue of this, uh, this uh, arrangement between this son and his father's wife. So maybe it's just this continual thing. It's this unity. Verse 2, or number 2, 6.12 suggests that why this action was ruled legal, it is not ethical. So let me read 6.12 for me. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So maybe this saying all things are lawful is saying, well, technically the courts ruled in your favor. You went to court over it, you fought over it, and they ruled in your favor, but I'm still saying it's wrong. Well, maybe that could be an argument for why it's this unified subject. Number three, the prostitute of verse 16 refers to the stepmother herself. And that when it specifically mentions prostitution in verse 16, I'll read that again for us one time to refresh our memory. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become fresh. So one flesh. So this is actually a reference to the stepmother. Maybe, maybe. I, I will say this. I like, I like this view in the sense that I think trying to find common threads and not just chopping up the Bible is good. I think we, we overly chop sometimes, but I think in this particular instance, he's dealing with one issue, then another issue, and another issue. So I do not think it is this particular unity. So let me give you some sad emojis on why maybe this isn't quite right. Number one, 612 is likely not referring to legal situation of the previous verses. So the language used there, just it just seems really doubtful that that's talking about a legal problem. The, 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 the phrase, all things are lawful for me, even the term lawful doesn't just seem to be quite right. Number two, 5.1 says that the sexual offense was not found even among the pagans. Do you remember that? It's like, oh, this is so bad, even the pagans won't even do this. So if that's true, why would the courts rule in their favor? Why would you win a court battle when Paul is claiming even the unsaved people and the people around you would not go with this particular ruling? So number three, the stepmother regularly being a prostitute is highly unlikely. It just seems pretty ridiculous that you'd be hiring someone in your family over and over and over again and that kind there is just no evidence that has ever happened. I mean, it's, it's, it kind of doesn't really make sense, and we certainly have no textual evidence that has ever happened in antiquity. So it seems unlikely. Now we go on to the view that I would have taken prior to preparing for this sermon and one that makes quite a bit of sense. This is a reference to sacred and or secular, secular prostitution. So he is specifically talking about the Corinthians are having this problem where they are going to prostitutes. And this is what he is trying to address with them. So now, is it secular? Just like I'm going to the brothel? Or is it sacred? Meaning, I'm going to the temple. So it's just really common to have temples. As a matter of fact, old Corinth had a temple where you would go, you would pay money, 
and then you to, to you know to visit a prostitute, and then what would happen to that money? It would go to help fund the temple. I mean, they they basically worked for their God to raise money. Now, a lot of times the excuses for why this needed to be done was this was supposed to be for fertility or something like that. They was always wrapped around some religious reason why they were doing it. But if you just wanted to kind of strip away the religious aspects out of it, essentially all that was going on was this was religious sanctioned prostitution so the religious people could make a lot of money. I'm sure it was a great moneymaker for them, and they, and they made a lot. And this is what was going on. So which of these two or both is he talking about if this is the issue that he's going with? So, number one, he treats the sin as a sin against God. So as you, if you remember reading the passage, you look back, and I won't re- reread it all for you now, is when he's talking about this sin, he's not really talking about a sin against, it's not against your wife or against the marriage bed or anything like that. He's, he's really talking about a sin against God, which might sort of make you think that the issue is sort of religious in nature. So maybe they're going to these sacred prostitutes and so on and so forth. And so not only are they doing this wrong thing as far as hiring a prostitute, but it's also religious in nature. Number two, the Jews condemned both types of prostitution. So we know that the Jews thought both were wrong. And so if they were doing them, Paul would very likely condemn them. That would make pretty good sense. Um, so maybe that fits. You know, Leviticus 19.29 specifically um, condemns secular prostitution, and Numbers 25.1 specifically condemns sacred prostitution. prostitution. Number three, Paul may see the two as equal. If you read the passage, you sometimes get the identity that, no, this, you know, this, this sexual union is so sacred, it's so important, whether it was at, in, in the context of religion or not, it's so important, it is sacred. Like he never separates the sacred and the secular. Like he sees them as both as the same thing. Number four, the allusions to the temple suggest sacred prostitution. So as we get to the end there, he mentions specifically the temple, right? 6, 19, and 20, it says, Or you do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. He mentions your body being a temple, and so if your body's a temple, maybe he uses this kind of illustration because they were going to the temple and actually taking part in this. And finally, number five, if all things are lawful in temple food, they may be in prostitution as well. So Paul's going to argue in this passage and later on that food is food, and it doesn't matter where it's come from. It matters what the association is. And so maybe they were using that same logic, like, well, hey, all things are lawful for me, not all things are profitable, and so because I can eat the temple food, because technically there's nothing intrinsically evil about it, so also can I take part in the temple prostitution. I think this is a very strong argument, but sadly, I also have a sad emoji face for this view as well, and I'll explain why. There is no evidence that sacred prostitution existed in New Corinth. So at the beginning, when we talked about the introduction, we said there was an old Corinth and a new Corinth. The old Corinth was destroyed, the new Corinth was built, and upon it was like a Roman colony. 
And so a lot of the things that are talked about in Corinth, as far as them being super um, sexually immoral, you know, you've maybe heard Corinthianize was just like a term used for sexual immorality. Those are all references to old Corinth. There is actually just no proof that in New Corinth or anywhere around them is this does this type of temple uh, prostitution where you go to the temple and hire someone ever take place. So I'm going to use an extreme example, which probably isn't as good, but you'll get the idea. If you say, well, you have England and you have New England, well, they must be pretty much the same, right? There's a lot of differences between England and New England, not the least of which is they're not on the same continent, correct? And then, uh, you know, time goes by, New England takes up their arms and fights against Old England. I mean, they're not, they end up not being friends shortly after. So to say, well, because this was true of the old doesn't mean it's true of the new. So we would have to have separate evidence to prove that New Corinth had this, and we just don't have evidence. So we know that this did take place in places like Cyprus in Eastern Asia, and so I put a map up there for you to try to help you. Uh, you see Cyprus is kind of in the lower right-hand corner of our map. You know, you see the island of Cyprus. It did take place there, and it did take place in Eastern Asia Minor, but in ancient times, as far as when traveling was so difficult and so, you know, arduous, those are kind of a long ways away. And so maybe that's not what really happened. So there's no evidence, number one. And number two, the way Paul treats it as a spiritual matter suggests it's not just secular. So let's go on to the one that I think is the right one. And this is going to be confusing because of the terminology. The author I got this view from that convinced me that this was true said he called it temple prostitution, but I like the term party prostitution better because in my mind it, it differentiates the two because the sacred prostitution did take place in the temple, so it's kind of confusing. And this is how this worked. You have a festival, a big party might be very likely a religious festival. Everybody would come. You'd eat, drink, and be merry. But to be merry wasn't, you know, just throwing darts, right? They, they would actually bring prostitutes to these festivals as a part of what would go on. I don't have to paint all the details for you. I'm sure you can imagine what all took place. It was very bad. And, and this was normal. And this is something that is well-attested that took place in New Corinth. So this is not going and hiring someone. This is just someone that their job is to be brought to these parties and be part of the entertainment. And this was common. We know this took place. We know that it actually took place in the Old Testament. Exodus 32.6, it says, people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Of course, this is, you know, in the as Moses was getting the Ten Commandments, and it says they ate and drank and rose up to play. And once again, rising up to play wasn't throwing horseshoes. It was the unholy trinity for Christians, pagan, and Jewish authors. An example that I like is this. You know, I've probably talked about playing cards here before, but you know, at like my college, we weren't allowed to use playing cards, and um, it has nothing to do with it had nothing to do with playing cards particularly, right? It was because cards went with drinking and gambling, drinking and gambling. 
Smoking, drinking, and gambling, they all went together. It was like, almost like you couldn't play cards without smoking, drinking, and gambling. They just went together. And you, you might know people like, oh, I don't smoke, but you know, when I drink, I smoke, right? They just, you, you know, just like they go, they go together. They go together. They just feel like, and that happens to us so much in culture. You know, like if I have bread, you know, I just can't not have butter, right? It just doesn't seem right to me. They, they kind of go together. And in this particular time, festivals where they ate, drank, and then rose up to play, they, that's just that they all came together, that they belong together. And so this is, may have been what was taking place. So he talks about it here rather than chapter 10 because sexual issues were often talked about together. Let me explain. In chapter 10, he talks about the temple and being involved in some of these things, these religious ceremonies, but he talks about food. And you go, wouldn't it make sense for him to talk about these temple issues and food at the same time he's talking about these sort of religious issues with the prostitution? Why doesn't he put those together? And the reason is it was very common for Jewish authors when talking about religious things, the way they grouped content, the way they had subject matter goes was sexual issues are here, this issue's here, this issue's here. So even though it might make sense to us to have those other two issues together, it would make perfect sense for them to have it here instead of somewhere else. And of course, on this one, I put the purple emoji because purple my favorite color. So uh, that's the one that I think maybe makes the most sense. And because of that, I give no arguments against because I would hate to have anyone, you know, possibly see why I was wrong. But let's go through verses 12 through 20. And as we go through verses 12 through 20, we think about it in light of what was going on. There's the celebration and prostitute being a lot. I think it'll make some good sense. So it starts out in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. So I do think the people have used something that Paul has said about food. That, hey, all things are lawful for me, you know, that doesn't matter if the meat is sacrificed to idols. It's only the connection. So if I don't know where it came from, it's all good to eat, so on and so forth. And they used this argument, and then they applied it to this particular situation, right? So the phrase something like, when in Rome, do what the Romans do, is true, sort of, unless the Romans are having, you know, prostitutes, then it's not okay to do as the Romans do, right? But they just said, oh, well, they're doing it, we do it too. And so I think this quote is probably from one of the previous times Paul was there, or the previous letter, because we know 1 Corinthians is really just 2 Corinthians. So he may have mentioned it specifically in the previous letter. We go to verse 13. It says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. So I'm arguing here. He even mentions the whole food thing. He says, yeah, food, you eat it. It goes in your stomach. That's all going away. You know, I get it. That's not a big deal. The body is meant for the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So what he's saying here, yeah, I get the food thing's okay, but this sexual immorality situation that you're involved in is not the same thing. You are not comparing apples and apples. You are comparing apples and oranges. You have come up with an excuse of why this is okay. And maybe meat sacrifice to idols and being allowed to eat it, depending on the context, is the excuse they are using. 
Verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. He starts explaining how we have this connection, this unity to Christ, and we'll continue to talk about that as we go through later on as he argues why they're so wrong in this situation of what they should do and related to the party prostitutes, as I call them. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And of course, it says never, or may it never be, or however your translation goes. And of course, he's saying here, when you became a Christian, you became one with Christ. You became connected to him. And so when you bring yourself into this kind of relationship with a prostitute, it's like you're bringing him along with him along with you in a sense, right? In a sense, us being members of Christ, we're supposed to be extensions of Him. So often we say we're His hands and feet. I don't think the hands and feet of Christ are supposed to be getting involved in this kind of activity. Verse sixteen. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. He starts using sort of this, almost like a marriage metaphor, and he'll use it in the next verse too. The two will become one flesh. See, the, there's, I don't know exactly how it works, and this is part of the confusing of this passage, but there's something special, and something specially bad, it seems, with sexual immorality. And so every time two people sleep together, you, know, you give a part of yourself. There's like this emotional connection. You know, scientists study it to a degree, and I'm not sure I completely understand it, but your hormones are released, and things happen to you when this kind of thing happens. And there's a connection there that you don't get from you know, playing cards, right? And so this type of connection that you have with someone you're not supposed to is particularly grievous. He goes on to verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So when we become part of Christ, we become one spirit with him. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. And that is a really hard under, phrase to understand you know, sinning against your own body and why it's unique. And I, I'm not sure I completely understand it, but I do fully agree that there's something unique with this particular type of sin that sort of follows you in, in a unique way. Verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. We think of the Old Testament and how important the temple was and, and you know, how sacred it was and all these rules they had for it and you know, the special room that only one person could go in once a year and it's so sacred. And we have that sometimes at church, though not anything, not anything near like that. I don't want to pretend it's good. But we, you know, I, we don't have one right now. But you ever been to a church that's had the Bible up on there, up on there uh, yeah, just forever? You know, it's been there forever, right? And it's never moved and no one's touched it and and the little kid goes up there and touch it and think they're, you know, they they're thinking they're touching the words of Jesus himself and and we we treat it so carefully and it's so important and so on and so forth and you know, well well guess what? The paper of that Bible really isn't probably all that important. I suppose it symbolizes something important. I'm not saying we should, you know, treat it badly. I'm just saying our bodies are 
the temple of the Holy Spirit in a way that that Bible isn't. And sometimes what we do with our bodies are things we would never dream of doing with a book. We will sometimes, I mean, do with our bodies, we'll see with our eyes things we just, you know, one thing I, and I, I know there's time and place for this, you know, you, well, we don't, we don't do that and we don't say that in church. We don't say that in church. Really. Because this church building is so sacred, you don't say it in church. Now, I'm, I'm not saying, there's, there's times for certain things, and I don't want to totally poo-poo that, all right? I'm, you run in one room, you don't run in another. I, I understand all that, so I'm not saying that doesn't mean anything. But I mean, I've heard it, in the con- especially when I was a you know, like youth pastor, you know, they swear, they do, so- oh, well, not in church. Really? Because the church building is somewhere super sacred that talking that way is not appropriate, yet the supposed temple that you have, your body that's actually containing the Holy Spirit, that really matters. You can use that to say and talk that way anytime you want. Any other time you want, it's no big deal. It's totally backwards. Our bodies are the actual temple. What we actually do with them really matters. And somehow thinking that the building is, that this building or any other one is what matters is like a good way to justify doing bad things. Well, I won't do it in this building. I'll just do it somewhere else. Somehow that's okay. One more excuse we have to do something we know we shouldn't do. The Corinthians are doing this like crazy, right? What excuse can I have to get involved with prostitution? Well, we, do, we can't eat the meat, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I hadn't thought of that. We can eat the meat. So if we eat the meat, I just think, you know, I, why not the prostitution? I mean... When in Rome, you know, what happens in Vegas stays there, I guess. I mean, whatever phrase we got to try to come up with to try to make ourselves feel better on the issue. For you were bought with the price, so glorify God in your body. We, our physical body, was purchased by Christ on the cross. He bought us with his own blood. He died for us. And we have the opportunity, the privilege to be his hands and feet. God doesn't need us. God could find another way to get anything done he wants. We have the privilege of being his hands and feet, to be able to accomplish his will, even though he wouldn't have to use us if he didn't want to. We need to stop making excuses to justify what we do with those hands and feet and start realizing we are to be tools of Christ. We're going to sing a hymn here in a minute, you know. Take time to be holy, right? Take time to be holy. Take a minute. Think about our lives. Are we being the tools Are we being the hands and the feet that we should be? Are we really fleeing sexual immorality? Or do we have our own other cute little excuses? I mean, we're not going to use the same one the Corinthians are, but we have our own. 
We have our own ways to justify our sinful behavior. So let's pray and then let's sing just for a minute. And I'd like you to think, take time to be holy. Am I justifying things in my life? Am I finding a way to get around it? Am I somehow using meat sacrifice to idols as an excuse to partake in prostitution? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning. We just thank you for this passage. And Lord, I'd, I'd really like to say how terrible the Corinthians were, but I just know that so often in my own life, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. My flesh just wants to pull away from you. It wants to do what I want to do. It wants to do things not of you. Lord, I just pray we would just take a minute, take a minute, evaluate ourselves, renew that fellowship with you. Just take time to be holy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.